From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this afternoon with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen, two longtime co-hosts here. Eric Bradlow is away doing Eric Bradlow things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week to talk sports. Athletics. been doing it for more than eight years now. We, in the time of COVID, and we still are in the time of COVID, so we're going to start with a little COVID. What's caught your eye in the world of COVID? And then we'll roll into an hour and a half of sports analytics. We've got a, a guest lined up for the full last quarter, as we usually do. We've got an, a special guest drop in for a little bit, talk about golf. This is British Open week, and so we thought we'd talk a little golf analytics in honor of that. But we'll open up, ask how the world looks this week on the COVID-19 front. We've got Adi in fresh off a full day of teaching. It's summer, but Adi's teaching. He's in the classroom. Wharton Moneyball Academy is up and running. Adi's looking a little worse for wear, but he's with us, and we appreciate it. Afternoon to you both guys. How are you doing? Great afternoon. It's not because the Morton Moneyball is it has worn me out. It actually fills me up. It's that absurdly hot bike ride home that oh. was uh, that was the debilitating venture. It's over ninety degrees, brutally hot sun, not enough water. Adi, Adi, there's a we're in the dog days of summer. Yeah, there's a couple services, Lyft and Uber, and yeah. wherever you are. <laughs> You could even leave your bike in your office. And I could. Audie I just wants to minimize his COVID, you know, COVID yeah, exposure yeah, right, exactly. here. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, that's right. Well, since uh, Shane brought it up with the COVID, um, last last show we did, there was actually very little. Um, but there's, I think, something really important that we should talk about. We're at the cusp of another wave. Um and I know that because Europe and Israel are right in the middle. South Africa is actually over it. They always seem to be several months ahead of us. And um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a challenge, not so much because it'll produce, and I think particularly many deaths. I don't think we'll see too many ICU cases. But it will be a challenge to our population, to our government, to people's reactions, because it's going to be a whopper. Um, and I'm just fo- focusing on the two... Um, observations that are being made and that I've observed personally about this new variant BA5. It's it's from the Omicron line. And not only is it contagious, I don't think it's necessarily any more contagious than the earlier Omicron variants BA1, but I do believe it is very immune evasive for those who have had earlier variants. So unless you had Omicron sometime in the spring, from which case I think you're you're not going to get this BA5 or at least have a lower chance of it. But if you had an earlier Omicron from, say, December or January, um, certainly a Delta or something earlier, you got nothing going. <laughs> you're you got you're going to get exposed and you're going to get it. Um, so real quickly oh, on that point, Adi, that's yeah. because if you if you had it recently, you probably had it from BA5. And if not, no, BA5, uh, BA5 is a variant of Omicron. So you have a lot of antibodies. So if you had it relatively recently, your antibody levels are higher. But 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 is, I think it's also the case that if you had it more recently, you probably had it from a, a closer cousin, and yeah. therefore the yeah. immune immune eva- evasiveness is not as strong. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, and, and again, the evasiveness. Are you specifically talking again about 
catching COVID, having been exposed to it? Or does it, again, are, have we yet to see a variant that affects the long-term kind of health benefits yeah. or, yeah. or the actual kind of health benefits having caught COVID that the yeah. vaccine provides? It, it seems that if you've had COVID in particular, um, even better if you've had a vaccination and a COVID, it doesn't seem to be much much of, a, of an illness. Um, and it certainly doesn't, you're not seeing any uptick in ICU and death. But it, what I'm pointing out is, if you're exposed, you're going to get it. I mean, it is a very contagious disease for which many people are getting sick and from it. And not a terrible sickness. I mean, particularly if you, as I said, you had a version, if you had natural immunity as well as vaccination immunity. But it's out there. And there's going to be lots and lots and lots of cases of it. And we're seeing that in, in Spain and in Europe and in England and in Israel. It is everywhere. And I know that because we had a wedding and then right before the wedding, wedding was amazing, but there was a whole group of people who went to both wet, who went to a wedding right before it. Many of them got COVID at that wedding and didn't come to our wedding and very large numbers and all are vaccinated people. Um, the majority of people I think who are got it never had it at all. Um, so there's obviously you're less likely to get it if you, if you've had COVID, but even people who've had it somewhat recently, December, January, they're getting it too. So let me give you a couple of observations on that. Uh, Ed Young, who's been writing about the pandemic from the beginning, he he writes pretty big pieces in the Atlantic every few months or so, published maybe yesterday a new piece on BA5. And he included a number of interesting empirical observations. So, for example, you just mentioned the likelihood that, that it's you're more likely to get it this time if you have never had it before. In the UK, something like 70% of those who currently have COVID had never had it before. And so we know that they're a minority of the people. Yeah. And so it, there is some protection from having had it before, even though we know that mm. this is more immune evasive than the previous strains have been. Incidentally, the, he also includes an observation here that I thought was stunning. And that is before Omicron arrived, about a third of America had had COVID. And by the end of February, 60%. Yeah. That's right. So all, all that had happened before was doubled with when Omicron made its way through. And that was essentially BA1, right? And so we're a yeah. few strains later. And it's the idea here is that it, it is more contagious than BA1, the original Omicron, but it's not that much more contagious. And BA1, Omicron, was so much more contagious than everything that came before. So the big shift came when we got in this Omicron strain altogether. Right. I think it's going to test us because, you know, I'm running a camp program. Kids are showing up positive. There are sleepaway camps all over the country. Kids are showing up positive. What are you doing with that information? Well, what are you doing? What are we doing? So uh, mostly it's a short isolation period and back to normal. That's what I'm seeing with our students, with other camps. They're not. How long is is short? um, I think five days total, maybe. Okay. How do we know how long it should be? I'm not saying, I don't know how long we should be. What I'm saying is that we're not, there's two responses to this. We could try to shut down, close close camps, mm-hmm. close schools, or we can just try to manage. And what I'm observing is an attempt to manage. And I'm not sure that's, that's, that we're, that's going to be the universal um, um, response. And uh, it's going to test us coming forward. And I'm, I'm, it's something to keep our eyes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, you know, Omicron to me always seemed to kind of have the effect, at least psychologically among the people I know of, like kind of almost normalizing, hey, having COVID, 
And it basically made it more like the common cold. And I don't mean to minimize, you know, obviously it kills more people. It has killed more people, certainly. And it continues to kill more people than the common cold does. But if it's a situation where kind of regardless of what you do, you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, that you still got, you, you can still take steps to kind of make sure that the health consequence of it is, you know, as minimal as it could be, then, you know, what, you know, kind of what collective actions, you know, are worth taking really in that context. I mean, like, has it just become more like the flu, more like the cold where it's just sort of, you know, it's something we cycle through and yeah, of course there's strains that are more virulent than others, but you know, just coming from Israel, I could probably rattle off 50 people who got it in the, that I know of, either personally or of a friend of a friend. And uh, I don't, I, and it's not, I mean, the, the reactions, I, I, there, some people had some bad illness. My, my, co- my, my second cousin was out for, a, a, for maybe three or four days. Um, he generally had like a flu. Um, he actually never had it before. But most people were getting a very minor sore throat, a headache, uh, some coughing, and then, and, but really no fevers, no debilitating fatigue, and certainly those who were vaccinated and even had it before, basically recovering fairly quickly. And so that's the backdrop. Well, the, 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 tr- the trouble is, of course, that even if most people experience mild symptoms, you give it to enough people and some are going to experience severe. And in Yang's article, he quotes, um, I don't know, I, I've lost track of what this guy is, but um, Bedford, Vince Bedford, is quoted as estimating 100,000 deaths a year in the U.S. at current, you know, uh, rate. Is that kind of what we're currently at? Yeah, but he's talking long term, so this thing's not going away. So well, we're if, okay, but yeah, I get, right, right. So I mean, basically, for this thing to tail off, and he's saying, well, we we might just stay here. And and my my memory of I've learned in this pandemic that what we what we're accustomed to in the U.S. is an average of 30,000 a year flu deaths. Is that about right? Right, but so concentrated forty in to fifty in a bad year. Yeah, so, so, so certainly some variants. So, okay, let me put that in context. We usually lose about thirty to fifty thousand in a flu season, but that's an, only in the season. That's generally January, February, December, January, February, and that's really concentrated in the winter. So, when it is the winter, we're at a rate of it's higher. Of that, that's that, that's actually higher than what now we're experiencing with COVID, but it's concentrated. So, it's kind of like a a low-grade flu season all the time. That's kind of what we have. Right. And so, I mean, that's, whenever we get too blasé or cavalier about this, we have to keep in mind that the the numbers do aggregate up in that way. And then there are these other further consequences. They're a little bit, they're a little bit secondary and tertiary, but the epidemiologists are always warning us about them, where the more this thing circulates, the more it evolves. And just the again the preponderance of it is just a pool of evolution around us that we're not knocking out and so it it, the more we allow it to persist the more likely we're going to have it for a long time because it's going to evolve more so it's hard hard to feel that you mean persist at all or just persist at current levels because again the flu has persisted for what like 110 years now yeah so you know i I mean what so i I mean, it's going to persist. I, I think people, right? I, I, it's a, that's what what endemic means is that you know it's 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 around for keeps. I mean, again, whether or not hundred thousand per year is kind of our equilibrium state, I it would be nice to get that lower. But I think the answer to that might be less about 
you know, what might be more about just kind of continuing to advance our medicine and treating of COVID. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, I, I do think that that, you know, kind of that 100,000 figure that he gave probably is more looking at sort of like, multi, you know, taking the current death rates and kind of just driving them forward. Uh, there's reason to believe that the death rates might come down, you know, just because, you know, we continue to get better and better at treating COVID. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to surface the aggregate realities of all of our individual choices that, you know, we don't feel the motivation necessarily as strongly as we're used to, but in aggregate that has, that has potentially pretty big negative consequences. Um, There was an interesting post by a fellow named David Stedson, S-T-E-A-D-S-O-N, David Stedson, who's working, he says he's working on a, on a paper on long COVID. And he just makes the obvious after you think about it, uh, observation that, if if you we don't know exactly how the risk of contracting long covid is a function of how many times you've had covid but if we make the simple assumption that it's just a constant risk every time you get it there's some probability that it turns into long covid then what is the probability of getting it as a function of the times it it it, it gets it, it adds up pretty quickly or rather multiplies up pretty quickly and I think that's an it's an interesting audience wincing as I'm saying this, but he's just posting a little figure that says, depending on what that base rate of probability is any given time, the cumulative ratchets up pretty quick. You don't like this, Adi? Well, first of all, I guess um, it is multiplicative. If you think of one minus, uh, you can add up the probabilities, you know, yeah. assuming there's an additive effect every time it ratchets yeah. up pretty quickly. Uh, I, I do think it goes down. I, I don't think it's a constant. I think it's, it's, it, it, the more you've had it, the more, first of all, the less um, severe it is in subsequent iterations. I think that's pretty well established at this point that you generate immunities, which keep you uh, from, uh, from getting sicker each time. And I think that uh, a long-term COVID reaction is clearly a function of the severity of the illness even though there are exceptions, there are people who had mild illnesses that end up with the long-term fatigue. Um, I think about long COVID. I think that that is, is something that is, is has been um, overstated as a as particularly from a policy perspective. People still think it's thirty percent of all COVID cases get long COVID. You're saying you're saying long COVID is overstated, and do you think it's yeah, a it's far, or the- far rarer uh, currently, certainly than it than it than it than it than generally widely believed uh, the, the public generally believes wild things um but, i wouldn't have thought it was 30 percent the, the no. perception of i wouldn't have thought people believed it was 30 percent. oh people believe it i if you spend some time i don't know on social media you see people saying 30 percent of people get covid get long covid um not clear what people mean by long covid so i, I have the the worst case of long COVID. yeah that was going to be my question i think it's it's hard to kind of put a number on something that's so nebulously defined right uh, Absolutely. So I have a friend who got alpha and he had what you would call long COVID, three, four months of fatigue and some brain fog. Uh, I have a student who had long COVID, three, four months of fatigue and brain fog. But they're, of course, completely better now. Um, a bad case of uh, what is long COVID? A six week fatigue is some people would call that long COVID. Right. You're better after. I would consider that. A, that's not a great thing. I'm not not be, be unhappy being fatigued for six weeks. Um, this is something we should actually um, get. We should we should probably get someone on to talk about because I think we've we've been inclined to be a little bit minimizing of long COVID from the first from when it first started being talked about, partly because of some skepticism of um, the way lay people reason about these things. 
but we, I mean, I know a lot of people are actually studying this seriously, right? There are people who are trying to figure that be less to define it less nebulously, Shane. So we should actually, because this is becoming a policy question, we should have someone on to talk to us about long COVID or actually know something about long COVID. Yeah, and I would be kind of interested to the extent that there's evidence that kind of like, because, you know, how much of long COVID is just the consequences of having kind of a, an infection cold, you know, like, is there something special about COVID that is long versus just having had a viral infection? Right. This is something that Adi in particular has said for really for the last little bit. It's like, look, all viral infections have the risk of these long legs. Um, so we should tee that up. Matty D remind us to tee that up and bring someone on to talk with us a little bit more. Well, Adi, I'm glad you got back with your, uh, immunity in place. And, uh, you're a traveling SOB for, uh, for the times we live in. It's surprised you're going to be able to pull through without hitting the COVID train again. Um, all right, guys, that's enough COVID discussion for this week. We've got some other topics lined up. Let's jump into a break now and come back after the break and talk about a little sports analytics. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. This is the second quarter rolling into the second quarter here. The first of three quarters on sports analytics. This is Cade Massey hosting with Adi and Shane. Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow's away. He'll be back, though maybe not next week. He might be away again next week. But some of us are here, and we love it when you guys jump in. You can jump in by hitting us up on Twitter. At W Moneyball is our handle there, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics, and we love to hear from you. Complaints, ideas, suggestions, whatever you got. Love, sure, we'll take some love from you. That's good, too. Email, you can hit us up by email. We have a mailbag via our email address, which is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at Wharton. .upen.edu. We read everything you send. We love to hear from you and we get as much of that on the air as possible. So keep your emails coming. All right, gentlemen, we have been away. We all missed last week's show. Eric had a, had a solo show. And uh, so it's been a bit. What in the world of sports has your eye right now? What has caught your eye? Well, I mean, I got, I got to talk about how, uh, uh, Jeter scored the winning run for the Red Sox against the Yankees in like extra innings over the weekend. It's one of the few kind of victories as a Red Sox fan that one can kind of take away from this season so far. Though the Red Sox have actually been playing well, but I mean, Red Sox are a powerhouse. I mean, they're uh, a powerhouse that are 15 games back, they're 15 the games division, back yeah. right? But yeah. they're nevertheless a strong team. And you know, the 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 Astros really played the Yankees to a draw. And looked really good. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm, 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 of course, liking the Yankees, but nevertheless, there's some competition. Oh, of course, yeah. No, and I mean, you know, it'll be as usual. I mean, I think any baseball fan, even when they are, are, are watching a historically great team, has to think ahead to being like, well, the playoffs are a pretty random entity anyway. I mean, you know, I think we can pretty much write the Yankees into the playoffs at this point. Right. Um, though, though, historic collapse would be very fun. Uh, <laughs> but, um. <laughs> We but I hope. think, you know, once there, you wouldn't give them much higher odds than any other well, team. I, I will point out that I believe in 1978, the Red Sox were 14 games ahead of the Yankees and almost exactly on this date. So uh, it's not insurmountable. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so right. 1978 means something to you, Adi? Was that a world? Sure, that's the, that's the year of the one-game playoff. The Bucky Dent the Red year. Red Sox were absolutely oh, yeah. dominant 
for the first half of the season. And they, they were 14 games ahead of the Yankees uh, before the All-Star, or actually after the All-Star break in, in mid-July. And uh, the Yankees, obviously, they caught them, and there was a one-game playoffs, which they won. And I'll have to talk about it because it's so great. A Bucky Dent's uh, magical home run in that one-game playoff. Well, isn't that really, so? Didn't Bucky Dent start out with the which, did he, which way did he go from Sox to the Yankees or Yankees to the Sox? I don't think he ever played for the Sox, did he? Well, he, he played for someone else before the Yankees. He wasn't much yeah. of a of a ball player. I mean, he was a, a stopgap, decent, decent. An Aaron Boone type, one might even say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he was just an unsung hero. It's like out of nowhere, yeah. Bucky Dent hits the three-run homer over the Green Monster. Okay, I got it now. So um, remind me, though, because this was peak. I mean, you're talking about when, Adi, you and I were like 10, 11 years old. This is like peak sports yeah. watching. Like, we're That's imprinted right. with what happened. So are these the years that Reggie Jackson was pounding home runs in October? Is this where right. Reggie Jackson hit the unnecessary uh, uh, insurance run in that game with another home run. Okay. Um, were these the years when they were playing the Dodgers in the, in the finals? The Dodgers were, of course, in the World Series. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Those were, those were the days. I mean, since um, we brought up, uh, since we brought up uh, kind of history as well, I, 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 I want to kind of mention, you know, just to take the focus off the AOEs for a second, is that the Seattle Mariners are on a heck of a run right now. There's something, you know, I think they're uh, 16 and three in their last 19 games. And, you know, they are with, especially with these expanded wildcard kind of Ooh. structure, they could make the play. They have the longest playoff drought, I think, of any major, uh, in any major sports. They haven't been to the playoffs. Yeah. They haven't been to the playoffs since that historic 116 win season back in 2001. And they're wow. at about 50% to make the playoffs right now. So, yeah, Twitter is, is imagining a scenario where Seattle, limps into the playoffs only to defeat the Yankees with their record-setting. <laughs> uh, sign me up, man. Oh, that sign sounds me good. up for that world. Yes. Yes. Things like that have happened before, right? Mm-hmm. Haven't the Yankees yeah. experienced some of that pain in recent years? Yeah, well, the Yankees, exactly that's the and the Yankees are what do, are the team that beat, beat Seattle in that 2001 season as well. Right. Oh, they flipped it. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, what else around the world of baseball? Let's, let's, let's give you guys a chance here. What else you got? Otani. He's Otani. the all-star Otani game grand pitcher. Yes, he, he's uh, for the second year in a row. He's done the unprecedented thing of being an all-star, both as a hitter and a pitcher. Interesting. I think uh, five thirty-eight had an interesting article, I think just published in the last couple of days on at, kind of breaking down his last two seasons. And the interesting kind of difference, I guess, is that last year he was doing most of his, I mean, he was contributing obviously on both sides of the plate to be uh an all-star, but he was kind of, his hitting was kind of carrying him last year more than the pitching. And this year he's a little bit down as a hitter, though, still an all-star. Um, but his pitching is just incredible again. So, you know, it, it's almost like he's, he's uh, doing it even more with pitching this year compared to doing it even more with hitting last year. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that the team like the angels have two of the most remarkable players, not only yeah. in baseball this season, but in baseball all time. Yeah. And there they are hanging out in, in Los Angeles or in California and interact. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, I, I was hoping this would be the year that we could kind of finally start to see Otani and Trout in the playoffs. I mean, they, they deserve the big stage in October and it doesn't look like they're going to do it again this year. Did John, we, 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 this is one of the songs we sing during baseball season. This is like, you know, yeah. same song, 12th refrain, but did y'all see I this complain play? about the Umps and the Angels. <laughs> well, the Angels, I mean, even, even I complain about the Angels, and I'm not paying attention to baseball. I mean, they're worth complaining about. But did y'all see this tweet that has gone viral? 
I, I just retweeted it on our account yesterday, but there's a guy, he's a, he lives in Toronto. He's not an Angels fan. He writes this tweet, and now, like, The Athletic wrote an article about it a couple of days ago. Here's the tweet, okay? Just think about what y'all just said. Here's the tweet. Every time I see an Angels highlight, it's like, quote, Mike Trout hit three home runs and raised his average to 528, while Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Tungsten Arm O'Doyle of the 19 19- <laughs> Akron Groomsman, as the Tigers defeated the Angels eight to three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that dude. You know, nothing else needs to be said. We'll just refer to Tungsten Arm O'Doyle. <laughs> it's a Tungsten game. Trout and Otani kill it, and the Angels lose another one. Well, you know, I, you know, one of the things about the Angels is it emphasizes the importance of a, a team. You know, you can have two absurd superstars, but if Everyone else is not even replacement level. You can't win. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think this is kind of, to the extent that, I mean, I think the Yankees have legitimately had a lot of bad luck over the last decade. And, and you know, I think they, you know, of course they have this championship entitlement that the Red Sox fans have now developed as well. But I think the one part of the Yankees entitlement that is unique is when was the last time the Yankees had a bad bullpen? Because that's really, I mean, that's, part of what holds the angels back it seems like perpetually every year and i think this is kind of i I mean i don't know if there's really kind of you know i could i could prove this with 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 analytics but i think it's kind of an underemphasized you know kind of bullpen consistency is very rare because we kind of think about it as the least consistent part of the sports but clearly some teams are able to string together consistently good bullpens year to year and I think part of the Angels' doom is they consistently have poor bullpens. And it's, actually, there's a there's a you know our friend Eric Eager over at PFF has done some work in football on football units that are weakest link units. Mm-hmm. And so there might be some units in football where you know you can have a weak player, but if you've got a great player, it counterbalances it. While there are other units where it kind of doesn't matter if you have a great player, if there's a weak spot, everything kind of collapses. And they're finally beginning to put some analytics around these things. So, for example, I think they think about defensive backs, the defensive backfield, pass coverage as being weak link. Um, And the classic one is offensive line. At least that's the classic hypothesized one. And I wonder if there's a sense of that in the way you're talking about the Angels, that there are some units in baseball that just can't be terrifically bad or else you're not going to win big games. Yeah, especially with the increased emphasis on bullpen in baseball. I mean, obviously, you know, we kind of, you know, the start, the the kind of the weight that a starting pitcher or, you know, what we call the starting pitchers contributes to to the to wins is is less because, you know, that's they're they're only averaging five, six innings, you know, a game anyway. So the amount that the bullpen kind of weighs into things is greater now than it used to be as well. So it's a a particularly bad time in baseball to have a bad bullpen. Right. You, you know, but talking back in the 70s, you didn't need a good bullpen to be a winner. You needed yeah. a strong starting staff. And you needed Dennis Eckersley and that's it or something like that, you know. Right. You know, because you just didn't use them that much. Think about what the, what the Rays do year in and year out, what the Yankees have been doing. I think a lot of that is built on these well-crafted, analytically generated in some measure, bullpens. Mm-hmm. Did, have, did y'all read this? monster of an article from Jeff Passan last week on ESPN about the dying breed of the starting pitcher. Um, I mean, 
you know, I just thought it was a fantastic piece. It uses some recent examples, but a lot of history. And obviously he's got kind of a saw to grind here, but a lot of people are have that same saw to grind. So it's a, it was a worthwhile topic, but it's a July 6 article from Passam. And man, I mean, goes through the real decline and near death of the starting pitcher and how, how this, the average number of innings pitched, it just keeps on going down. And, but they go a little farther and say, is it possible that this isn't like self-fulfilling in that the fewer innings you give them, the more they feel like they max out and the more they max out, the more sensitive they mm-hmm. become to work. Yeah. And so they lose this ability that, that supposedly historical pitchers had of pacing themselves and therefore being able to throw 100-pitch games or 120-pitch games or whatever because they knew they were going to go longer, and so they trained for that and kind of and, – and, and, and pace themselves appropriately for it through the game. Well, did, did – I didn't actually read the article, and I'm going to – first thing I'm going to do after our show, but uh, one of the things that is important is that there's such a, a value and increasing value and desire to throw hard. And the harder you throw, the less – and it's actually highly nonlinear the less likely you are to be able to go more than five, six innings. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering whether or not, and one of the, one of the considerations is we know we're going to get some kind of hard pitch clock that's coming. Uh, not clear when, but it's coming because it's the only solution to shorter games. And that seems to be an absolute necessity to save the game. I think we'll see it. And what's that going to do? Maybe the starting pitchers will have to realize they can't throw that hard. And then they'll find themselves quite a bit less tired after yeah. five innings when they don't mm-hmm. give a hundred percent when the difference by the way is between 98 percent and 100 percent on an arm is a lot yeah right so they they um late in the article pass and talks to theo epstein and epstein of course you know le- left the game but stayed involved he's, he's the minister with- of trying to improve the game or whatever the <laughs> so- official title is Whatever that's whatever that is, that's what he's. Yeah. And we haven't seen anything from him. He hasn't even talked very much about it. But he does talk to Pastor about this, and he says one of. I, I think what well, I think this was his suggestion, but it may be Passons that you uh, you restrict the number of pitchers on the roster. And right now it's twelve or thirteen, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to take it back to like eleven. Yeah. And if you you just give them fewer degrees of freedom and how they manage that pitching staff, and that you might have to be a little more heavy handed. You know, pitch pitch clock a oh, lot. I, I a think lot. it would have to be quite aggressive. And I mean, they've already. I mean, he. I, you know, they already have. Are, institute some rules to kind of help like you know the three minimum batters faced and some of these other things that are that that are already current rules or doesn't it tell i just you know given the kind of trends that we're talking about i think you're going to have to be pretty aggressive if you really want to kind of somehow scale scale back this trend and i think it's going to have long-term consequences obviously on kind of the hall of fame discussion for pitchers because some of these historical benchmarks are going to have to be kind of, you know, essentially, you know, gotten rid of, you know, I, I, you know, I I was just looking the other day. I mean, Justin Verlander is probably the closest thing to the hall, like a first ballot hall of fame lock among current starting pitchers. And he's at something like 240 wins. He's not even, you know, he might get, he might hit 250, but he's not going to get anywhere near 300 and 300 in my life, you know, in, in my kind of viewing lifetime was the standard for a okay. Hall of Fame. Unless, of course, your winning pitcher. percentage is extraordinary in your, in your lifetime era. I mean, Whitey Ford never came close to 300. No, I mean, there are exceptions. Yeah. True. true. Pedro Martinez never came close right. to 300 as well. You know, so I, I mean, there are there's it's not it's not a, a requirement. But I think, you know, even using wins at all probably will become a decreasing kind of, you know, aspect of things if 
yeah, I mean, what does a win even mean if, you know, we go towards a situation where, you know, your starting pitcher, you know, goes three or four innings in a game. But, you know, but also talk, we have to remember sports is an, uh, is an entertainment uh, and, and it's important that we have heroes and players that we care about. And if, if pitching, which is half the game becomes essentially a, uh, a squad without yeah. stars, it, it yeah. lessens the game. Uh, you're going to love Passon's article because yeah. that's a big part of it. It's like, you want the narrative. Like that Epstein talked about that. It's like, you want the narrative, that starting pitcher, he is the narrative. He's the protagonist. That's what you want. It's really interesting. No, I mean, as a very specific example of that, I mean, you know, we get so excited about no hitters and perfect games, but like, you know, I mean, the Yankees were recently no hit, but by a staff of three or four players. And it's like, ah, okay. Like a staff, no hitter just doesn't have anywhere near the same drama or emotion associated with it. That's right. Super interesting. All right, guys, speaking of sports as entertainment, there have been some moves in college football since we were last together. You guys may not have been quite as uh, riveted by it as I have been for the last couple of weeks, but I'm curious. Have you paid attention? Has it caught your eye at all? Are you curious? Do you even know what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly curious. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this kind of, you know, you know, this kind of like league shuffle, essentially. I, 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 you know, I, I've, I've increasingly thought of, you know, the, um, the uh, college football kind of like, you know, these different leagues of soccer where they just kind of like, you know, exchange, uh, you know, like crazy. Yeah. Well, the, let's just recap what, what's going on. Of course, the big, the big, event was that USC and UCLA announced they're moving to the big 10. Um, apparently the, the, the board of regents in California may yet have something to say about this. Even just today, John Wilner, San Jose Mercury news, longtime sports reporter is writing that there's going to be a meeting that may take up a challenge to this. And so I guess it's not a done deal. When it first got announced, some people were like, well, I'll believe it when I see it because of the regents out in California. So we'll see, but uh, people have taken it to be a done deal. And then it just, you know, after Texas, Oklahoma last year, it raises the, the possibility that all these dominoes are going to fall much faster than people ever thought. And all of a sudden we're going to have these two mega conferences. And then the question is going to be who's in, who's out, and at what rate of speed do we get to these mega conferences? And so, goodness gracious, it's just dominated the conversation. Lots of uncertainties. Let's just walk through them real quick. If you're trying to make sense of this very, very messy landscape, I think one way to do it is to think about who – controls their own fate here. And there's kind of only one organization that does, and it's Notre Dame. They can go where they want to, when they want to, and anybody would take them. And so everyone's kind of waiting on what they're going to do. The presumption is that the Big Ten would like to have them, um, but uh, and they're just waiting to see whether they'll go. I I think a lot of people are beginning to think Notre Dame's not going to move anywhere right now. Partly because there's option value, they they can you know they like they they can decide later. Let's see what happens. They they the NBC supposedly topped up their per contract, their their TV contract, so they're not exactly hurting. So NBC, I mean Notre Dame might sit tight. Then the question will be, will Big Ten kind of sit tight if Notre Dame does? Because after Notre Dame, the only entities on the board who kind of control their own fate are the Big Ten and the SEC. They're subject to each other. This is this fascinating part. Like, it's not just what they want to do. It's like they're going to make moves that affect their competitiveness with the other entity because that's the presumed two super conferences in the end. And so maybe they want to grab some properties before the other one grabs properties, like North Carolina, for example. 
SEC apparently would love to have North Carolina, but maybe Big Ten wants North Carolina. Maybe SEC wants to jump the Big Ten on getting North Carolina. So there's that kind of consideration, which is super interesting. Of course, North Carolina lives in the ACC, which has this different structure, same structure, but different time frame than everybody else. They have, they have a grant of rights that go through 2036. So teams don't control their own media rights for another, whatever that is, 14 years. And they did it for stability. They chose to do this and they re-upped it actually once they did it for stability, but it's a much less lucrative contract. The TV numbers have quickly leapt over those numbers. And so the ACC is locked in with ESPN into this monster long stability inducing, but kind of leading them way behind the other teams. And so you can't grab a North Carolina, you can't grab a Clemson, at least right now. So um, the ACC is kind of locked up. On the other hand, last piece, Pac-12, everything's kind of pressing on the Pac-12 right now. And this longstanding prestigious conference might because be... Because kind of of the big power ones, it's kind of the least prestigious or least prominent now. So it's kind of considered like, is that... Well, without... They've been decaying some in recent years. The, the TV numbers have been falling. Um, they don't get the time slots that other schools get. And after, and they haven't been competitive. And, and the lack of competitiveness has been a real problem. Then they lose their two marquee programs. And what do you got? You got Oregon and Washington and not a whole lot else out there from a media eyeballs perspective. And the Big 12 ain't, you know, Big 12 always been the weakest of the five. But since they went reshuffling after Texas OU announced last year, they brought in some new people. They've got, they've got kind of surprising stability. And so what's happening is this, this tug of war between the Pac-12 and Big 12. For a while, people thought the Pac-12 might poach some from the Big 12, but now it seems more likely the Big 12 might poach some from the Pac-12. Supposedly real serious conversations between the Arizona schools and Colorado and the big 12, like those, those schools might actually leave. And so the pact, you know, Washington and Oregon are sitting up there just waiting for invitations from the big 10. It's not clear. Those are ever going to come. So the pac 12 is sitting there and it's just, all of these things are fascinating studying coalitions, but the pac 12 is like, they're trying to talk each other into being a stable group, but then everybody's willing to leave. Like, do you trust each other to stay? Do you trust if you commit to staying that someone else is not going to leave? And it seems pretty tough in my, from my perspective, it seems pretty tough to hold together, but there are all these different pressures on the PAC 12. What happens there? Of course they're downstream from Notre Dame and they're downstream from big 10, but after those two entities, what those groups, what those schools decide to do as a group and as a group of individuals will determine a lot of what happens next. Adi. I, I, let me ask you an ignorant question. How big can a conference get before it's badly big? Obviously yeah. not 10. <laughs> well, these, these uh, SC and UCLA take the big 10 to 16 and Texas and Oklahoma take the SEC to 16. So 16 are these numbers and people used to think, well, let's do four 16 team conferences and that'll be the, that'll be the power of 64 or whatever. And, um, but it seems like these two are really outstripping everybody else. There's not going to be enough. I mean, it's possible. We'll still end up with four and 16, four 16s, but there's talk now of these mega conferences. Maybe they go to 20, maybe they go to 24. It really challenges what is the notion of a conference. Yes, because they can't all yeah. play each other. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess that was kind of listening to your description. It's kind of like, I mean, most of these kind of conferences are based on his, you know, kind of 
spatial proximity, right? You know, they were regional and, you know, I, I obviously there's going to be an effect on some regional rivalries are going to be by necessity broken up. But I guess in college football, the one thing you don't have to worry about as much is you never had balance. Like you never had, you know, kind of a schedule balance anyway. Yeah. So right. I, I, I think about a 16 t- team conference where you only play like 10 games. That's hopelessly unbalanced, but it was hopelessly unbalanced before. No, it's you start. You need to think, think like um, AFC, NFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, so you've got divisions. They're kind of loosely connected into a conference. The winners of the conference go on to play each other in a championship. That's one possibility. Yeah. Um, they're more than anything else. They're kind of TV agreements. They're, they're, they're yeah. bound by TV agreements where the SEC is connected to ESPN and the Big Ten is going to be more. Well, I mean, and that's the thing is once they're not regional, what's uh, you can't even call it the like SEC doesn't like mean anything anymore. Is it going to be no. like the ESPN conference? And this is going to well, be the, or like, you know, this is the Geico conference or something like like the naming yeah. too. It, it, once it's not got any kind of tied uh, history. Well, Shane, we're probably we're probably in some intermediate state and we're not to the final yeah. state. yet. And one way to think about it is that these could be intermediate steps towards a division in college football mm-hmm. could you could really separate out the top 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever teams. Like, like you mean like kind of like premier league and then, you know, yeah, the next one down type of thing. Yeah. And exactly. maybe you have even have like a relegation structure in there somewhere. Well, that would satisfy a lot of people. We'd like to see a little relegation. Yeah, that would be, be kind of cool. Don't let Vanderbilt get too complacent down there. Um, but we don't know, but it's clearly it's, it's stretching our traditional notion of conference for sure. At least if it keeps on going and people are anticipating it, keeping on going. And, you know, obviously the fear of missing out is so stark for these, I mean, you know, Washington state, they've been power five, you know, since they've been in the PAC 12 they didn't talk about power five back in the day, but essentially, you know, top tier and they're not going anywhere. It's not at all clear. They've got any place, place to go after this. And it's just, you know, bad luck. There's Purdue. Who are they to say they're better than Washington state, but by the luck of where they've been and path dependence, they're set up in the, one of the two best conferences. So it's not fair, but it seems to be the way we're going. And there's obviously knock on consequences, or at least could be for the non-football sports. And it could be, it seems the logical thing to me seems to be that you would separate football from these other sports, because now you've got these LA schools who are going to, everyone's been whinging about this from the beginning. They're going to start sending what their volleyball team to New Jersey to play Rutgers for a conference game on a Tuesday next fall or whatever, 2024. Yeah, fall. And a lot of, the, a lot of the kind of, uh, I mean, I guess football is probably the least, I mean, it's still very regional, obviously, but a lot of these, uh, a lot of the kind of sport, college sports are even more regional, right? I mean, you know, it's, 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 I, you know, I, I don't know what the UT Austin like rowing team how they do compared to like you know what's they, up they, here, but they won the national championship. Oh, well, I, I, you picked I obviously good, picked a very bad example one. there, so there you go. But I, 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 I at least gave you, I gave you the lead in for that for that announcement. Yeah, that's right. But that's yeah, right. but I mean, I, I, some of them are are even more regional, like lacrosse or something like that. So I, I think it would make sense to kind of, I mean, again, there's no reason you would need to kind of maintain. I guess as far maintain like the same structure for the across. No, I agree. I think you might see a separation there, and I think that would probably be good. I think it's helpful to think about TV numbers um, to give you a sense of how stark these things are. And you'd think that we'd be in a business 
radio program would do more of this kind of thing. But I, every time I see these numbers, it is eye-opening. Let me give you a couple of questions. I'll ask you a couple of trivia questions. Um, what do you, how many eyeballs do you think watch the most popular games? Like in the last five years, and who do you think it was? I just had this kind of roughly. Like, so we're not talking players here, football, like regular, regular, regular season, season kind of games. Season. Like, so yeah. I would assume like Alabama, Auburn, well, you know, some of the big rivalries or Ohio yeah. State, Michigan are the big yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. What do you think they do? You have any sense? Oh, have I, any I, I, What's that, Adi? 10 million, is that off the mark? Yeah, I'm not hearing the first number. 10, 10 million. So 10 is a real good number for college football. The top ones do like 16. And they come down pretty quick to 14s and 11s. And um, so um, some folks have poked around on this stuff. Andy Staples, has a he's with The Athletic. He played football for Florida. Um, has a good podcast. And he wrote a piece last year on $4 million Four million viewer games. This on the heels of Texas, Oklahoma, and how that was kind of a nice benchmark for the really big eyeball games. And and so of the four million, so I can tell you there were there were 193 of these over the five. I think he looked at four or five years. Out of 1,600 games, there were 193. So 12 percent of the games were these four million or more viewers. Okay, just so we're talking the top 12 percent most viewed games over five years. What percentage of those came from teams do you think that, well, let's do conferences. So like uh, 30% of those are across conferences, but of the, of the ones that were within a conference, 135 games within a conference. So teams playing the team within the conference, what percentage do you think came from SEC or big 10 versus any of the other conferences? So the top two conferences versus the other, whatever, eight. At least 50. 77. So more than three, right at three quarters of the top came from those two conferences. And that's before they're the bigger conferences. They're not necessarily bigger than everybody else. Three quarters. Let's drop it down. He updates this analysis this year. He just ran, he wrote an article last week. Let's drop it down to the 1 million or higher. So now we're down to, you know, we're, we're at something like, uh, I don't know. That's something like um, half the games or something. Um, what percentage of the 1 million and more eyeballs come from teams that are either in the Big Ten and SEC or going to be in the Big Ten or SEC or Notre Dame? So Big Ten, SEC, present or future, plus Notre Dame, what percentage of the games involve those teams, of the games, of the half of the games that collected a million or more viewers? About half, I'd say. I mean, given how high it was before, I'll it's say again, 77%. Wow. Okay. Wow. So three quarters in both these cases, it's three quarters are garnered by, and it's just, so it's, you're talking about teams that you're talking about the difference between the top, the top game, like 11, 12 million people. And then there are teams that average, you know, 700,000, 600,000. It's just, it really does argue for kind of a premier league versus not, you know, lower. Yeah. I mean, that, that at least I think would sort of support that kind of structure. Can I, can I get a a comparison number? Uh, 77% of the, the highly watched games are from these big conferences. What fraction of the games are from those big conferences? It's a lot lower, but how much lower? Uh, Right. So, I mean, I don't think they're any bigger than the other conferences. So there are two there. I'm naming two conferences out of um, 10 and they're probably a little bit bigger, especially because we're throwing in the new teams and Notre Dame. So let's call them a third. It's probably not a third. 
but let's call them a third, maybe 30%. Yeah. The odds, uh, you know, odds of about two times as big, a little bit more than two times as big. Yeah, I'd go more than two times. Um, and then there's this, there's this skewness to it. So I think that puts some in perspective into why there's so much pressure to group the teams that can pull those kinds of eyeballs and how that's not going anywhere. It's only going to get higher. And so like Clemson, for example, of the teams that are not, you might think about, okay, the teams that aren't in those two conferences plus Notre Dame, who's, who are the real outliers and the biggest outlier by far is Clemson. And so there's, this is how these coalitions break. There's just too much tension between what they can do outside the coalition if Clemson were to leave the ACC versus what's happening within the coalition, it's just not sustainable. They've got this grant grant of rights, but it's going to, it's, it's going to get, it won't last until 2036. The only question is how long between now and then. Okay. A little bit on college football guys. I'm sure we're going to do a little bit more on that, but I had to at least update you on what's going on. It's been a very interesting, wildly interesting couple of weeks on the, Professional football side, Shane, are you excited yet? What do you think about this Baker Mayfield move to Carolina? I think, honestly, I support it. I mean, you know, I, I think it's kind of a, a – certainly a win for Baker Mayfield. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know how any anybody could sort of see the situation that he's been enduring in Cleveland and not want to, kind of, you know, have a change – regardless of your opinion of him, he's definitely a player that could benefit from a change of scenery. And, you know, I mean, obviously Carolina, you know, the cynic would say they just kind of try, keep trying, you know, throwing – rolling dice to try and, like, you know, get, get a quarterback from kind of the rehash pile. But, you know, that's what – why wouldn't you try and roll dice, you know, for that type of thing? You know, so, so I, I think it's kind of a – it's a good deal for both sides, to be honest. So I, I'm I'm I I didn't watch enough Baker Mayfield to know why he's so tragically bad all of a sudden. I know that he was hurt, and so he played injured this past mm-hmm. year, and so therefore we probably have to be a little careful how we judge his performance. But man, for a couple of years there, he was pretty highly lauded. But the experts say that he's you know no better than league average or whatever, maybe maybe a touch better. Yeah, but I mean, no better than being at league average is valuable. I mean, again, Carolina's current quarterback situation—that's an upgrade over Carolina's current quarterbacking situation. It would have been an upgrade over Seattle's current quarterbacking situation to get somebody at league average. So, yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, th- I think part of the perhaps you know certainly part of kind of um, people's negative opinion or you know the reason to hesitate on baker mayfield is he's uh, you know he's through his kind of cheap period so like having a rookie quarterback right. or like you know right. quarterback on right. a rookie contract at league average is actually incredibly valuable if he performs at league average continues to perform at league average you're gonna have to pay him league at least league average quarterbacking salary and that's gonna make him more expensive yeah this is term but i mean so but i mean if carolina ends up you know if it turns out he plays well and he ends up being kind of a league average quarterback then that might be worth paying for well i want to see a team pay the league average veteran on a second contract what that's actually worth instead of overpaying them that's i want to see that happen i feel like people have kind of uh, uh, kind of accepted or they kind of Mm -hmm. we've kind of learned this thing we've learned this thing that people overpay for kind of average quarterback play on that second contract, but we've yet to see a correction to it. Maybe Mayfield could be a correction because that would be a concern if he goes down there and plays well enough. Um, But now he wants the big contract. And I think this is where really good management separates itself. They make those hard decisions. They don't get pulled into that kind of bad decision-making, but that kind of management is, you know, far more rare than 
we'd like. But Sam yeah, Darnold yeah. apparently is just an unmitigated disaster. And again, I don't want enough Sam Darnold to know, but I've just kept on waiting for him to turn that bus around after watching him play in college. But I guess it's not going to be turned around. It does not appear so. No. Um, all right, guys. Well, we're not that far from football. Training camp is going to open here in just a little bit. And then we're going to be on into, I don't know, all preseason games. And then we're not that far away from actual football. Guys, that's been fun. That has been three quarters. We've still got... No, that's two quarters. That's two quarters. We've still got two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3 now. We have a special guest, special interview. We're going to sneak in an extra interview. It is British Open Week. And it's not, which is always fun. I mean, British Open is so much fun. We watch golf at a different time of day. They play on courses. It's it's really kind of special. But then this year, even more special, partly because it's at St. Andrews, the home of golf. But not only is it at St. Andrews, but it's the 150th British Open. So they're making a bit of a fuss about it over there. And to my eye, the leaderboard stacks up. Super interesting. You've got stories kind of, I say leaderboard, the, uh, the favorites board. You got stories all the way through the top 10. Everything could be interesting. And so we want to spend a little extra time on it to, to help us think about it and to think about it a little bit more rigorously. We have Matt Corshane here. Matt is a founder of Data Golf. His brother is his co-founder, Will Corshane. And Data Golf, I mean, you'd have to be into golf analytics to know it, but if you are into golf analytics, you'd know that they've kind of taken the world by storm. They have become the go-to source for good numbers, great, a lot of numbers, and really good analysis. And so these are perfect folks to talk to about what's going on over at St. Andrews. And while we have them, we want to hear what's going on with those guys up in Toronto. So, Matt, thank you for being here. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Excited to talk a little golf. Well, tell us, tell, give us a little background on data golf. Uh, you guys are sitting up there in Toronto, not exactly the hotbed of golf. Who was it? Mike Weir, left-handed golfer. He was he the best Canadian golfer in the last generation or so. Who's the, who's, who are the best yeah. Canadian golfers? I think he's the only Canadian to have won the Masters still. If that's correct. Yeah. Only Canadian to have won a major, I think. Although there could be some, I mean, I kind of exclude, you know, sports before like, the 19th, I don't know. I don't, there may be a really old Canadian, but Weir's the only recent major. <laughs> be careful. Be careful. Matt's a kid. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. got some 50 year old hosts. You got to be careful, man. Um, all right. So, how did you guys decide to go do this thing? And what is, what do you consider your unique offering versus what else other people can get from other sources? Yeah. So, both my brother and I had a background, or we have backgrounds in economics. And in like 2015, we were, I was doing, I was actually in Vancouver doing a PhD at that point, Will was working and we just sort of decided to start like a blog about analytics and golf. We thought there wasn't, there wasn't much out there. By 2015, obviously Mark Brody's strokes gain statistics were sort of, I mean, they'd already been well-established, but they were making inroads into the mainstream. Yeah. And, but anyway, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a ton of content online. I don't think that was because Bro, Mark, Mark stuff was all academic. So we wanted uh, a more public facing website and yeah so it started as a blog uh and then we started a twitter account and things sort of it was pretty it's been a pretty slow burn honestly that was 2015 and then uh sort of we started doing more predictive modeling like a year later 
And then through all this, like now our website has morphed into a lot of our users are sports bettors. Uh, we never had that in mind when we started data golf, but it was sort of a natural transition. We started doing predictive modeling and now the whole website is kind of built around our model. And, yeah. uh, and, and through all this, there was the legalization of sports betting was happening and it just made a lot of sense. So now we are still, and actually, and, and also my brother and I were huge golfers growing up. And so we've always thought of data golf as like, this is the place for golf nuts who kind of like data. Yeah. Despite it, this site is for them. It's not really for sports betters, although I've come around to that idea because that's our business model. So <laughs> it's funny how that can persuade you. Yeah. Um, well, listen, there's, I, let's just pitch, pimp the site for a moment. Datagolf.com. It's really easy to get to. Great fun to play around with. My favorite thing to do, Matt, is you know, we, we had this notion that golf performance, there's a lot of autocorrelation in golf performance. And so, I mean, in a lot of sports, we make fun of people who talk too much about momentum because we think it's kind of BS, but in golf, there's a lot of momentum. There's no getting around it. And you've got some graphing tools where I can drop in and look at your strokes gained model for an individual player over time. And I can compare it to any number of benchmarks, like how does he do versus the top 25 golfers on the PGA? And you see these little trends and you see these little mountains that climb as the autocorrelation is positive and then it drops as the autocorrelation is negative. And you see the golfers that have had these big moments like Morikawa in 20 and 21, John Rahm in 21. They're just unbelievable autocorrelation in that they have months of this performance. It's just way above not only the field, but above their historical averages. So it's great fun to look at. Yours is the best site I know to do that. And so when I go to the British Open betting page and see you know what people's odds are I, one of the things i want to do is go look at that look at those trends on those players and like where's scotty scheffler on his little mountain where is xander Schauffele right now and where's john rom compared to where he was a year ago and your side is just fantastic for this and you see these you see all that out of correlation now you've got to choose some things right so i'm using the last 25 rounds if i use the last 50 it looks different so you've got some parameters and I'm just doing it with my eyeballs, your betters and your clients are downloading data and they're running their models. But tell me, Matt, am I making it up or am I kind of on the right track when I'm thinking about how I should be evaluating golfers and their prospects for a tournament, especially St. Andrews this weekend? Yeah, no, I think you're on, you're more or less on the right track. I mean, a big key to sort of, or the key to understanding like a golfer's, what their sort of baseline skill is. And I'll say baseline skill is just like this golfers, are, they have a, if you just threw them on some random PGA tour course, that's kind of their baseline skill. But then obviously at each individual course, uh, they're going to have, yeah. they might be a little better, a little worse, but yes. But yeah, the, the biggest thing for figuring out baseline skill is sort of thinking about, yeah, how do I, how do I weight their rounds historically? And in your wording, it would be how strong is the autocorrelation? Like how much weight should I be putting on their, their last 10 rounds, last 20, uh, yeah. et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, we have a model that does that. And honestly, it doesn't look too different. I think we default on our site to like 50 round moving average because that's yeah. sort of a, it's not, it's obviously crude, but it's sort of a rough uh, estimate of what sort of the best weighting could be. Um, yeah. It's a little more fun for me to play with 25, just to get those hills a little more up and down. Shane was going to jump in. Yeah, uh, I, I guess, you know, thinking, I mean, obviously I, I, think you know momentum and i totally agree momentum and autocorrelation are i think bigger in golf than most sports but you know obviously you know how the british open and and the kind of courses that you know the british play golf on are very different than you know what a lot of these 
golfers have been experiencing up till now, right. In the last say 25 rounds or whatever. So to what extent, like, you know, should you, or do you kind of try and norm for the types of courses that, that, you know, I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to take the last 25 rounds at like British courses because then you might be going back like eight years for that. But you know, how, how would one maybe do that? Well, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, uh, so for this week, we're, we're doing like a few things. Like first we have for any course, not just British open courses, like we'll adjust if there's historical data, which there is at St. Andrews, we'll adjust, we'll do what we call course fit, which is where we just look historically at what types of golfers have played well at St. Andrews. And by type of golfer, I mean, uh, we have five attributes for golfers like distance, accuracy, iron play, etc. So that's like basic course fit stuff. St. Andrews seems to favor distance, doesn't penalize inaccuracy. Um, and then we have course history stuff, which would be just looking at how they played at St. Andrews if they played. Um, but then this week, and more to your point, we actually, this is new for us. We've, we've done like a links adjustment where we've, uh, we've done two things. We first looked at which countries, so nationalities, like American players, South African players, how do they perform historically in, at links courses? just because for a lot of players, we don't have much data. So we, we kind of take that as our prior. And then if we do have a lot of data on a player, like say Jordan Spieth, who has played well in Scotland for like, still not a huge amount of rounds, but 25 or something, we'll update off that American baseline. Um, and yeah, just to get a sense of the adjustments, like I think they range from like negative 0.2 strokes to like 0.3 plus 0.3 strokes, which that's pretty substantial in golf. Like in our rankings, 0.2 strokes would be the difference between like the the 20th and 30th ranked player, maybe that's in their skill level in like strokes per round. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit what your model is saying for this week? We've got, let's just, I mean, you've got the obvious favorites. We can look at the betting boards. Xander or Rory and Xander are Rory's on top of everybody's. And then Xander, Rom and Spieth and another Rom Spieth, Fitzpatrick and Scheffler in the next tier below that, Justin Thomas, Shane Lowry, just below that, Cameron Smith, Patrick Cantlay, below that, Morikawa, Zalatoris. That's kind of the top 12. Any thoughts on the on the field, on those guys or others in the field? Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I left out uh, about St. Andrews and British Open's is general, in general is that they're high variance. And so that doesn't help the top players and it, it does help the bottom players. So for us, relative to the betting market, we're low on like all the top guys. I think of the guys you listed, Shane Lowry is, is one player we do like quite a lot. And that's, he's kind of been flying under the radar. Like Lowry's been playing really well for like a year now and he hasn't, but he hasn't really won much. And so that, that's usually like a basic way in which data-driven models tend to disagree with uh, more results-focused models. The ones, the guys who aren't in other sports too, like teams that aren't winning, but they're losing by a point or something. Uh, they're they're going to be undervalued by like the casual better. Um, but overall this week, like if, if we sort by our, expected value on, on the field we're we're on all super long shots which is partly because yeah we think it's high variance it's also because the market in majors will price in a big kind of a narrative i think there's a lot of truth to it too though is is, is just that just mentally it's really difficult for a, a no-name player to win a major it doesn't happen that often but if it does happen it's at the british open so so super interesting. The Shane Lowry thing, of course, Shane has won before, not that many years ago. He didn't win at St. Andrews, but he did win in 2019. And what he was, he was late. He was playing on the leaderboard on a Sunday. And which major was that? Was it the U.S. Open? Okay. Um, just a major or two ago, he was super competitive there. So that's an interesting 
an interesting guy to keep your eye on. So Murakawa is one who I, 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 don't, I don't like because I think he's off of his, he's off of his hill. He's, he's back down to playing Colin Murakawa average golf, as opposed to the run he was on there for a little while. It's he's the defending champ. And so people want to jump on that. Of course. What do you think about Tiger at 66 to one? Mm, I mean, personally, <laughs> well, I mean, obviously those are horrible odds, but uh, by yeah. horrible, I mean way too, way too short. Way too short, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, from the model perspective, which is basically useless for Tiger, we're pretty, I guess we're kind of low on him. Uh, but I'm kind of okay with that, like, personally, just because after the U.S. Open, it just seems like Tiger, if there's any course he can actually walk four days on, this is it. But he's just physically, it doesn't seem like he's quite there. So, Matt, you say that because St. Andrews is both, short and flat is that is that the reason why it's easier to walk and the holes are even kind of close together and they're kind of on top of each other it's not it's just not much space out there no yeah i think it's mostly it's really like it's really flat like there's not any actual elevation changes it's definitely undulating like the fairways and stuff so tiger might roll an ankle or something he might have that that leg of his i don't know if it'll hold up that well but it shouldn't be tiring there's no hills yeah what about Rose? Is he, is he, where's his game these days? He kind of burst out of the scene on the British as a teenager. He's still playing quite good here and there. I think of him as a majors guy. Maybe I have that wrong, but he's also at 66 to one. Yeah. Rose. I mean, he's kind of the last couple of years, like 2020 or even a bit earlier, 2018, 2019 Rose was yeah best player in the, in the world, but he's kind of, I don't know. He's fallen off a fair bit. I mean, 66 to one might be reasonable. We have him. Yeah, we don't really like him that much this week. Uh, but you're probably right. He might he may elevate his game in majors. No, we, got sure. the, we got the narratives, man. You got data? I got yeah. narratives, Matt. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Here's another one for you. Zalatoris. Which way does the narrative go? That he's got to win eventually? I mean, you can't be that close for that long and not get across the line eventually. Or is it the other way, which was the guy can't win. He can't close. He hits the ball well, but he can't get, he can't get it done. Yeah, I mean, I think... So Zalatoris is, we actually did a little thing on, he's, he's the biggest major over, overperformer of anyone that's played more than like 10 rounds, I guess. Uh, so just what, comparing, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Uh, just, right. Just comparing his uh, strokes gained, adjusted strokes gained in majors to uh, his adjusted strokes gained in regular events. So he, he over, I mean, it's a tiny sample size, but he's overperformed in majors by like, uh, I think over a shot. I mean, he um, plays better than expectation. He plays better in those. Okay. Yeah, like yeah. he's like a, he's a modern day Brooks Kupka. Exactly. Yeah. Brooks was obviously the guy who used he to was have that modern moving. day. Brooks kept <laughs> like that was like a couple of years ago. Oh no, right? it's got world's moving fast. Shane. World's I know, I know, fast. I know. Plus, I know. Brooks was actually winning the damn thing. Yeah, I think I mean, yeah, I think uh I don't know, it's tricky. Uh, these things are always tricky when guys because Brooks like defied our model. We got burned many times on Brooks because it seemed impossible that he could keep playing. <laughs> like a completely different ma- player in majors. And now it does kind of seem like, I mean, Brooks has a lot going on in his life. So maybe he's golf's not a priority. I don't know, but uh, he has not been as good in majors, but I guess for these things, for these narratives, if you want to call them that, you just have to think of whether there's re- like intuitive or reasonable explanations for them. And like Zalatoris, this can't explain his whole thing, but like, because he's such a good ball striker, he is going to play better. Like, in the majors, they play big golf courses, at least in the American majors, like US Open, PGA. These do tend to be courses where like Zalatoris is going to have a co- good course fit. That's that's not going to explain a, a one stroke overperformance. Um, but then the British Open is not really like 
I mean, the, the British Open is just, there's a lot of randomness. I wouldn't think, I don't like any of the top guys this week just because it seems there's so many unpredictable elements, right? So it's amazing that we talk about this periodically on the show, how many golfers you need to have half the top golfers. Start at the top, go down the list. How far do you have to go down to have half the probability of winning? And it, 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 you have a different intuition because you're an analyst. I think most people would say, okay, here's the deal. Because the number is going to be about 12 this week. And those 12 are Rory, Xander, Rom, Spieth, Fitzpatrick, who just won the PGA, Scheffler, Justin Thomas, Shane Lowry, Cameron Smith, Patrick Conley, Colin Morikawa, and Will Zalatoris. I'll give you the top 12. You want that or do you want the field? Basically, everybody who's not running numbers is going to take those 12. And yet, it's more or less an even bet. And you're saying you actually want the field because of the variance that you see happening in the British Open. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the model says. I mean, sometimes, especially on weeks like this, where I feel like there's a lot of ad hoc adjustments to some degree in the model, I can be, I can certainly be convinced by someone who tries to tell me that now all these long shots that you're showing big expected value on, like, those are guys who are going to fall apart with nine holes to play and you're your model doesn't really capture that effectively. And like, that can be a convincing argument, but uh, I certainly you're, think. You're too young to have lived through Vandeveld. Maybe did you set the Vandeveld effect? You got to get the Vandeveld effect in there this week. <laughs> yeah. No, we're working on it. It's yeah. All right. not ready for, not ready for production yet. All right. So listen, Matt, we're going to have to let you go and get away to our break, but we love talking to you. We love the work you guys are doing and we appreciate your stepping away from what we know is a very busy week to chat with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Matt Corshane, he is a co-founder along with his brother, Will of data golf, and you can pick them up datagolf.com. It's easy. Just jump on, start poking around. Super interesting place to see golf data, golf analytics. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics rolling into the last quarter, the last half hour. This has become, in the time of COVID, our interview segment, our main interview segment, anyway. This is a week where we do multiples, but we're going to focus for the whole next half hour. On Josh Brown of Pitt Row, we haven't talked to Josh in a few years. We caught him early, I think early in Pitt Row's life, early in our life, early in Morton Moneyball life. Pitt Row does analytics on racing, NASCAR in particular. And you might not know how many analytics there are in, in racing. And we love hearing about it. So, Josh, good to see you. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, great to, great to chat with you guys. I love talking sports analytics. Well, I, I, I know you do because I got up here. You were already talking to Shane about baseball. <laughs> Breaks my heart. Yeah, and then we almost got going on Premier League. It sounds like you could do a little soccer. If, if yeah, you know. well, baseball has so much data. It's always fun to talk about it. But then they don't let the teams use it, which is a bummer. Unlike motorsports where the teams have access to all the data. You mean you want you want the real time. You want things going on. You want a crew in the dugout. Or you want a crew I, on I, the monitor. <laughs> I think yeah. some teams had that, right? <laughs> they sure. it was, it was a just, <laughs> just around the corner from the, from the dugout anyway. Yeah. And that's yeah. true. Could be, you, you auto racing folks are like, you're going to just forget any bands on technology, man. We want to pour it all in there. Give us a sense. Of, well, first we got to remind people pit row. This is probably, I think I'm just going to name it. This is our favorite 
name of an organization in sports. <laughs> right. On. I think that's, I don't, I don't know that there's any competition. Row is spelled R H O for those of you just listening. It's not pit row. It's pit row. That's the Greek letter that I think it's most commonly used for correlations, even though it doesn't have to be that. So right. we're delighted to have anyone with that clever a name, but Josh, give us a little bit of background on you and how you got into this and, and remind those who don't know what it is that pit Rose doing. Yep. Uh, so my background uh, was uh, uh, motorsports engineering. I was a I was a race engineer uh, and a crew chief, mostly in the NASCAR series for about 18 years or so. And then around 2010, uh, went back to school and uh, did a mid-career PhD up at Columbia in New York uh, in environmental engineering. And while I was at Columbia, a group of MIT nerds reached out to me. Uh, all They were all card carrying PhDs from MIT and they wanted to do, they wanted to build a gambling model to bet on NASCAR racing. They had identified that the sports books in Vegas had some suboptimal lines like driver A versus driver B or a subset of drivers versus each other. And the, and the wagering would just be around which driver finishes the race ahead of the other drivers. And they were interested in trying to exploit that. And I had recently left the industry, but I left on unfavorable terms. So I reached back out to a friend in the industry and I said, hey, um, talking to a group of uh, MIT people and they wanna, they wanna gamble on NASCAR racing but I think the outcome could be building a, a predictive analytics model that can predict the outcomes of race events that you could then use for strategy. And what I needed was uh, access to the live timing and scoring feed, essentially when cars cross the start finish line you know, okay. and want all that data at the same time. So what that quickly turned into, we did do some gambling and had some fun with that, but what it quickly turned into was a General Motors funded proof of concept project that resulted in, in what became pit row. And we okay, said, so hold on, hold on, hold on. You yeah. said a couple of things I want to understand. Go, ahead, go for it. Um, it Cause it could have been a little misleading. You you're asking for historical race data so you could build your models. Is, I'm well, thinking, good question. Yeah. We were asked, we asked for about a decade's worth of historical data to train yeah. and build models. And then we wanted real time data that was, you know, during practice of that race weekend. And then during the race itself, because ultimately you want to be doing, in race, real time analytics. Every time cars cross the start finish line, you want to be updating your prediction for the outcome of the race in real time to then inform a subset of competitors' optimum strategy right. based on your projected. Now, Josh, you want to do that. You want to do that if you're involved in racing. You don't. You don't want to do that as gamblers. Well, you might want to do it as gamblers. Correct. But you, right. You're not going to have access to real time right. data. That's right. Absolutely. Game. The gambling, what you do want for the gambling uh, is historical data to train your models. But then if the race is on a Sunday, but there's on track activity on a Friday or Saturday, you want that on track activity to update your models. With Is that information public? Yeah, yeah, generally it is. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other thing you you kind of passed through pretty quick was it sounded like you were going to go improve the world with an environmental engineering PhD. I, I, I am. Got- <laughs> I don't know. A- I'm not sure your I'm not sure your dissertation advisor anticipated the direction you're going to. No, no. This started as a hobby, and we ended up building a full data 
data analytics company out of it. And we did take learnings from our motorsports analytics. And we started to do uh, climate impact analytics work to the point where we recently, uh, we General Motors acquired, and I'm still, I'm an advisor to the project, but General Motors acquired Pit Row. Uh, and we spun out another arm of our company to do climate analytics, but it was all based on motorsports and the data science techniques that we learned in motorsports uh, to, to uh, you know, to build our own expertise, not just in the data analytics side of it, but also the software engine, all the heavy lifting software engineering that takes place to build a, a program like this, like Pit Row. Okay. Okay. But yeah, that's, I did, that's, re- uh, that's really really neat. That it comes together like that. Yeah. Tell me that you started out though. You said as an engineer in the pit crews. Yeah, that's what it. I had a fire, that- a fire suit with my name on the back. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. How do you think that affect that informs your modeling? How do you think you're different yeah. as a modeler as an analyst because of that experience? Yeah, I I think uh, as it relates to motorsports, but then probably more generally as it relates to sports analytics and gen- overall you need significant domain expertise. You can't just grab a bunch of nerds, put them in a room because they like baseball and have them now become experts. I think eventually they could, but you may be, I think the Dodgers have done that. I'm not I sure. Think, well, I think the Dodgers have done it and the, the Dodgers did it. The Phillies were trying to do it and then they all yeah. went to the Dodgers to do it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Hold yeah, on, Shane, Shane, jump in here. Go ahead, sorry, Shane. Well, I mean, just to kind of frame that, I think, you know, we're, we are you know, the kind of stats nerds that would jump in and pretend like we know everything about baseball. And I think there's been several cautionary tales over the years of things that, you know, sort of are counterintuitive about the sport that you don't realize unless you've kind of experienced it. So maybe as, as you kind of describe, you know, your subject domain expertise, like, is, is there a couple like kind of examples like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I think the, the pit row uh, project is a good example. I was the domain expert. Our customers who were we were collaborating with were the domain experts, but our army of nerds were not, but they figured it out. They knew they weren't domain experts. They knew they needed to become domain experts, and they did. Any one of them could go and, and be part of a race team or you know work at GM or Ford or Toyota. The same way I think the baseball analytics and basketball, uh, yeah, they were fans of the sport with a lot of quantitative you know, uh, expertise but not domain expertise. And they learned it. Well, so this is super interesting because I think it's super general, this interface between coders and analysts and the traditional decision makers. It sounds like your coders came around on some domain expertise, but in those early years, would you say that you were the translator? You were the oh, bridge yeah. between yes. the crews and the coders? And you need that. Uh, and it, it's a, it's a, it's an, entertaining tension that exists. And even when I worked in motorsports as an engineer, you would have this tension where you might be performing some, you know, pretty heavy lifting vehicle dynamics simulations where you're trying to simulate the, the, the physical car. And you might come up with an outside the box solution to a performance problem that can make the car go faster. But the same way with other sports, there are ingrained uh, (laughs) perspectives on how things should be run. Like, you know, if you told baseball 50 years ago, you'd be shifting, you know, half the infield and outfield over to one half of the field or everyone over to one half of the field, they call you crazy. We're having eight pitchers in a, in a game. Um, and in motorsports, it was the same thing. And a lot of that came from 
the the cars themselves and um doing outside the box things from a vehicle dynamics perspective and taking well, that, that mindset and yeah. translating it now to decision making uh it's fortunately for us uh in the motorsports industry you still have a lot of old school thinking that you can exploit like isn't that interesting the way that he, the way he put that Shane's like do you hear a lot of analysts whinging about uh and well, there's reasons for it, but it's an opportunity. As long as traditional decision makers are resistant to advances, it's an opportunity. Here's a way it limits things, Josh. Um, there aren't as many smart clubs, or I should say sharp clubs, hiring analysts if there are these. So there's, there's career limitations. If, right, if right. It's interesting that I can imagine it might be easier to sell in – in, in something physical like the uh, engineering dynamics of a car. Cause it's like, it's either true or it's not. I mean, right. you can measure it with a stopwatch. Yeah. yeah. And you could, you put a little piece or take the piece off or bend it this way or bend it that way. And it either runs faster or it doesn't. And you're going to know kind of right away after you test it. That's, that's nice. If we tell a guy to draft, it's going to be five years until you know for sure. And even then it's a flip of the coin, you know, the, uh, the fun part about uh, strategy uh, analytics is uh, like I mentioned, you still have people that have an ingrained way of thinking that's uh, it's not correct anymore, especially given that everyone has access in the mo- If I speak about motorsports, oh, yeah, yeah. NASCAR, everyone has access to the same raw data. Okay. All the teams get the same data. It's what you do with that data that yeah. matters. And you can see in real time, like, for example, you know, uh, right now we support all of the, the Chevys, all the General Motors teams. So they all have the same data and they all know what the re- recommended strategy is for the other Chevys. The, and yeah. they know that those other Chevys have the, the yeah, hit right, row. Right. But you might see a strategy recommendation that you think is crazy. And we get feedback in real time, like, cause we're, mm-hmm. we're supporting the races. Uh, you know, we're communicating with the pit boxes and we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll see uh, dialogue where they'll say, is pit row really recommending us to take right side tires only when we know everyone's going to take four. And we're like, yep. And it's by far the right thing to do. And that you'll see one guy say, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. Another guy says, that's crazy. Right. So even in real time, you'll watch, People not buy into it, and but almost always you will see it work out. Okay, uh, Josh, can you give us can you give us a few more examples of these kinds of strategic decisions or advice? So well, I was about to ask you, you gave us one, but can you give us a few more? Sure, I think uh, you know a big one uh, for us that occurred. Uh, the value of of a pit row isn't always the race win; it's the taking the eleventh or twelfth place car that would have otherwise finished 11th or 12th and finishing third or fourth with it. And you do that, aggregate that over a season, boom, you can win a championship, or at least you finish the season in the top five with a 10th or 12th place car on speed. So that's okay. on aggregate, that's the value, but that's not as, uh, as shiny as cars that are maybe running 10th or 11th. They do something really outside the box on strategy and they win the race. Mm-hmm. An, an example comes to mind maybe two seasons ago. Uh, I mean, Richard Childress Racing is, is one of our Chevy teams, and that's the team that we started with years ago. So they're bought in from the okay. top down, from the bottom up. They are the most bought in of our teams. Okay. And they have a, a really nice command center uh, where they can support the race 
remotely. And it was the Texas race. I think it was two seasons ago where they finished first and second. Uh, but they were running mid, you know, between 10th and 15th all day long. But what we had realized was through the analytics is, ah, they're running 12th, 13th, 14th, but they're only about a 10th and a half, 0.15 seconds off the pace. And it was due to the rules package at the time and the, configura the configuration of the track. We realized that, ah, if they, they get out front, you know, we, by the time we got to the end of the race, we realized the advantage to being out front, meaning first or second, for aerodynamic reasons only, purely aerodynamics was worth about 0.25 seconds. So if you take a car that's 0.15 seconds slower than the fastest car, you put him in first place where he's going to have a 0.25 second advantage. That's eighth grade math now. He should just run away with it. And that is exactly what happened. But they were the only two cars that came down pit road and didn't take four tires. One of them did fuel only. One of them did two. And the rest of the field took four mistakenly and even in real time we're chatting with the command center at rcr and they're like we're doing it but are you guys sure we're like yeah we're pretty sure everyone's going to do this wrong right now you're going to get 35 cars come down pit road and take four tires you're going to jump to first and second and you're going to run away with the thing and you can go rewind the race ah, that's and and they had to do it over a few restarts like the race had a few caution flags late in the race so i think austin Dillon won the race and he needed to restart from first i think three times and each time he got a good restart and he just pulled away okay wow so that's a good example that that was a good catalyst for uh our general motor increasing our general motors uh relationship yeah, seriously, you need those kinds of wins in your favor that's awesome yeah. i mean i think in other sports you sort of see uh i, I mean I, I think to a certain extent uh, i guess um a common theme to some of these uh, vignettes that you're uh, bringing up is, is kind of like, you know, there's, there is potentially some benefit to doing kind of an unconventional strategy relative to the rest of the field. Do you kind of feel like as to a certain extent, as, as, as I guess analytics becomes more kind of commonly underlying strategy, are there going to be certain teams that kind of invest in variants where they're almost intentionally maybe going against the grain or perhaps doing a suboptimal thing? Because, you know, if 99% of the field is doing the exact same thing, maybe a suboptimal thing actually will give you an edge. Great question, Shane. And uh, per our earlier dialogue, we still can rely on antiquated thinking. I can't believe at this point in the, in that industry that you still have antiquated thinking that you can still take advantage of. It should be what you just said. It should be everyone's doing the optimum thing. So you're going to have to do something counter or you're just going to run where everyone else runs. It continues to, and I, you see in other sports as well, you have top talent and they don't win games because they're they're They haven't caught up and that, that, or they haven't been utilized properly or whatever. Yeah. And I think what, what we have, what's interesting in specifically in NASCAR and I, I love this about that industry is like I said, everyone has access to the same information. So the, and you have three big manufacturers, Toyota, Ford, and General Motors. They're all doing this. They're all just doing it differently. And it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to do it well. And it's difficult to get buy-in. And what you see with the General Motors teams over the last few years is they're all in on this approach. Now it's not the only thing you need to have good drivers and fast cars, but it's a mindset. And it may not always work out because there are some variables that you may not have 
uh, estimated yet, or they're not in your model. But usually it works out. Just look at General Motors' performance over the last few years. They won the last two championships. They've won the most races this year. It's not all strategy. I wouldn't say pit row is the reason for that, but it's a mindset. And it it infiltrates the all your decision-making, not just your on the pit box so, race. Josh, say more about the mindset. So you're saying it's a mindset that is related to using analytics, but it's not just about analytics. What do you mean by the mindset? Yeah, it's you have to trust the data. I mean, I know that's cliche and you hear it in other sports, but if you put all this work into, into making, into generating in, interesting data, you need to trust it and mm-hmm. everyone needs to trust it. And you can't pick and choose when you're going to trust it. You have to be all in on the approach. Now, if you really understand the data, you will understand its limitations. So when you're faced with a decision, and you see a project, a predicted or projected recommended strategy, I should say. You may not want to do that, but if you understand the limitations of the model, you will be able to make an informed decision to veer from the recommendation because mm-hmm. you'll know what the limits of the of the model are. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean from an all-in mindset. So you don't have to just blindly follow what a what a machine learning based strategy recommendation is, but you need to understand where it comes from, how it arrived at that, at that recommendation, and then you can make an educated decision to veer from it. And we get that, you know, as a domain, as someone with domain expertise, I get that. Like sometimes there are other things you need to work on, like the driver screaming about an adjustment that must be made on the car that pit row is not taking that into account. It takes into account the, the objective speed of the car and it, that speed relative to the field, but it doesn't know how emotional the driver might be in there or how important it is to make an adjustment that could improve your speed. May, may or may not improve your speed, but you know you need to do it. Otherwise, you're going to lose your driver. And you know that in, at the elite pro sports, you know, being there mentally is important as well. And pit row does not take into account the uh, the mental state of the driver on any given lap. So a couple of things here. Do you, do you think that the mindset that leaves them more open and trusting of the data is positively related in some way with their management of the driver, with their management of the car? Is it, is it connected? Because in some places there's a, there's a sense that analytics can be disconnected from those other things. And the, yeah. and the organizations that are best or kind of most extreme in analytics kind of miss some of these. It doesn't have to be that way, but certainly the stereotype is that they miss some of these other elements. It's a great question. Uh, what I've seen, I, I can give you some practical examples here where first I can say the driver has to be bought in. Okay. Uh, you know, an, an anecdote would be uh, when Kurt Busch was still under the, uh, the GM you know, he was running, he was racing a Chevy before, uh, before he changed teams this year. He was great at this. Like he had, he had a smart engineering based crew chief that used pit row and they would review the game plan prior to the race event. And there were times where they would do something absolutely crazy sounding or looking and Kurt Busch, he'd come on the radio goes like, yeah, I know you have more information than I do. I'm all in whatever you say, I'm just what I'm going to do. And he won a race doing it. Like he threaded the needle. Everything worked out perfectly. They got the golden caution that you wanted, but he was in position to win the race because he did something crazy on everyone else thought was crazy on strategy, but he bought into it. And if I take Hendrick Motorsports as an example, I know that they have pre-event 
uh, the pre-briefs with their drivers to review the what the analytics looks like for the race event. So the drivers have to be bought in and understand where the root of the decision-making that takes place on the pit box. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that most of these drivers are younger and they're savvy, you know, they're very intelligent and you see. It okay. Hold on. You think it's, it's changing over time. It's just like, like it does in other sports as the next generation comes up and they're more analytically savvy or oriented. Yeah, and, and or, or another way of saying that is, is, is age one of the best predictors of whether or not you kind of leave are able to embrace this kind of analytics. I, I would, I, I think it's a high correlation, but it's not, uh, not, it's not a, you know, you're not, your R squared's not 1.0 there. And I can tell you because in my own experience, uh, you know, I worked with, I was fortunate enough to work with Bill Elliott toward the end of his NASCAR career. And toward the end of his NASCAR career was also when all the the rate the car design and uh, vehicle dynamics and you know race weekend decision making was made by engineers and we had a lot of data acquisition instrumentation on the car so we knew everything the car was doing he was really good at just driving the car really hard giving us some feedback but not telling us what to do to fix the car and he would even say i don't know what to tell you i don't even want to see the setup sheet i don't want to know what's in it because i probably wouldn't believe it <laughs> i'm telling you what it feels like Go look at the data and you guys fix it. Uh -huh. So it's not entirely age. Uh, it's correlated with age. Uh, yeah. It's probably, <laughs> this is going to sound bad, but it's probably correlated with intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> like that's Bill Elliott is a very smart guy. Anyone that's ever worked with him would, would say the same thing without exception. It's probably why he was so successful and had a Hall of Fame career. Well, one of the beautiful things that you've said here is you said, the best ones know the limits of the data as well. And, right. and, and it's like that kind of wisdom, it's not just being smart. It's that there's a wisdom about the limitations of it. Yep. Um, talking with you about this makes me realize I don't understand the organizational structure around these teams or the decision-making yeah. structure on these teams. I understand it in like all the other major sports in the U S who is the, who's making the call here. Who's the analog to the head coach or the GM or the owner? Yeah. So they generally have, uh, and most teams have the same structure. I, I, I'm not speaking specifically about, you know, one yep. particular Chevy team, but all the big teams have a similar structure where you have multiple cars per organization. So Joe Gibbs racing has multiple cars. You know, Michael Jordan's new team has multiple cars. Hendrick motorsports has multiple cars. Every team has a crew chief. And that would, I would say would, be the equivalent of your head coach in, in football. But then you also have a small army of race engineers, and those would be the equivalents of your offensive coordinators, your defensive coordinators, your quarterback's coach. You know, they're, they're there as well. Um, and then you have your, your mechanics, your race mechanics that either build the cars at the shop or, or service the cars on the race weekend. And then you have your pit crew, which are generally made up of athletes, you know, because you're you're working on on pit stop time, reducing pit stop time is an athletic endeavor. Right. Uh, so the decision making ultimately falls upon the crew chief, uh, the same way decision making falls upon a head coach. But mm -hmm. the those race engineers, you have some race engineers at the track with you, and then you have an army of them back in these command centers that all the teams have now, and they're communicating in real time with the racetrack during practice and especially during the race. And they're providing all this information. And in the best case, uh, you have a very senior, trusted race engineer that's sitting there elbow to elbow with the crew chief, 
and they have a relationship of trust where the race engineer just says, I just looked at all the data with this, with a half a dozen other engineers, this is what we should do. And that crew chief can just go, yep, he doesn't even need to think about it. He can just do that. And I think you see that play out with the best teams. My own experiences with, with the Chevy teams, the last two championships were won by Chase Elliott's team and Kyle Larson's team. Great crew chiefs, great race engineers. Uh, yeah, and they don't, and the teams don't change a lot ever. Yeah, know, right. Core technical team, the core competition team stays the same. So there's a lot of uh, built-in trust uh, that they have amongst each other, and you see it play out not just with those two teams, but look at the other teams that are successful year over year. It's rare, and it's the same in other sports. It's rare to have a lot of turnover in your, yeah. in your coaching staff and still be competitive. Right. Yeah. You, you need some you need to have some consistency there. That's that's neat. And in this analogy, the driver is the quarterback, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. The driver would be the quarterback and the rest of the team are either players on the field. You know, I would consider the crew chief and the race engineers and the mechanics and the pit crew players in the field. Yeah. They're just support players for the for the quarterback. But okay. I think a more apt analogy for people that don't know the industry is the coaching approach, especially yep. football, where you have so many coaches that are that work on one part of the of the offense or the defense and that's right. what you see a lot in nascar got it listen josh before we let you go i gotta ask a, a detailed question about this season i have a good buddy down here I, i'm in i'm in austin most of the time I'm a good buddy down yeah. here all right nascar fan yeah. um and he, he 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 coached me a little bit to ask you about these seventh generation cars yep so this new platform my understanding this year new platform, new equipment. And one of the goals was to bring a little more parity to equalize the equipment across teams is, is what I, I've read. Yep. And so everybody has to buy the same parts basically, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, so a couple of things, um, how has that worked out? It sounds like it, you, we are seeing some guys who haven't won as much win a little bit more. So maybe we, we are. Yeah. We've had a lot of new winners this year. Yeah. Well, you, you're the you're, overall variance of kind of performance somehow lower in a measurable sense. So it's a great question. And uh, I call it the next, the gen seven car like you would, but for some reason, NASCAR, they call it the next gen car, but I don't know next. what they're going to, what they're going to call the gen eight car. If they keep calling it <laughs> the next, next car. Yeah, right. But that said uh, it, I would say that car is more uh, just bringing some of the technology into present day, you know, and I think part of the design of this car is to allow in the future for a hybrid powertrain. It's got a suspension that's more aligned with what car current cars have. Um, yep, they they do have to buy part common parts, but that's not entirely new. Like that that existed at some level in the past, um, but it's a new platform and. What, what you usually see when a big, what I would just generally call a big rules change is you have some parity that exists, maybe to call it the first half of the season while everybody's figuring it out. But then the best teams with the most resources, they figure it out better. And by the end of it, there are no surprises. So right. I think that's played out here in the first half of the season where you have some new winners because people are still figuring out this car. But okay. now look, you know, Chase Elliott could have won the last three races. That's <laughs> kind of back to normal. <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah. the top teams figure it out better than the mid-pack teams. However, there has been some uh, 
more collaboration between organizations to like at the manufacturer level. So I think like you see the track house team, which formerly was, it's made up of a lot of former Ganassi people. It's the team that's owned by partly owned by Pitbull. Uh, they've won with both cars this year and they're very competitive, but they're in that GM uh, camp and they get GM support. And there's a lot of information sharing that goes on. So if one GM team does well, the others do well. And that's kind of like the Toyota model where they all share information. So okay. you're seeing that as part of this next gen car. Uh-huh. There's been more collaboration amongst the teams, but uh, it's been fun like to watch some fresh people win and be legitimately competitive. Like the Ross Chastain's team, that is a championship contender out of nowhere. And, okay. I mean, they're <laughs> running up front every week, so it's not a fluke. And it's great to see that kind of thing happen. So you said it's about figuring things out and maybe what would lead one team to be better at figuring that out? And and in your life, like what role does pit row play? What role does analytics play in trying to figure out? Yeah, so something that's changed a good bit over the last few years is, like I mentioned to you, all the teams have access to all the data. And a few years ago, I think since we spoke last, they unlocked in-car real-time data, like, driver inputs like throttle steering brake lap cornering force you know you have a lot more information now than you had so in real time and everyone tries to do this i think pit row does a great job of doing it efficiently is you have you know where any given car is losing speed and gaining speed relative to the field and you know why meaning you know that the 48 car is losing time getting into turn one and you know it's because this car's too loose and you can communicate hold on, hold on, Josh. you're getting this information not only about your car but every car yeah, you get it for every car in the field everybody oh gets God. it for every car in the field so now is competition among engineers to say all right who can do the most of that data in real time so right. it, it's so it's software engineering, it's user interfaces, it's it's getting it's distilling all of this data down to a very digestible format <laughs> that if I'm on the pit box as a race engineer or a crew chief, I just need an answer. I need to know where am I losing time? Because yeah. the driver is probably telling you something else. The driver is telling you, I'm losing time getting off turn two. Yeah, but it's really because you're losing time getting into turn one and that's, yeah, that's right, propagating right. through the corner. And you can see that in the data. The best drivers know that. The best drivers will tell you, I know what I'm feeling, but you guys tell me what the data says. Yeah. And that's been a real uh, advance in the sport. I love that NASCAR has opened up that data because it creates a lot of interest for younger, technically minded people uh, Mm -hmm. to be involved either in the sport to work in the industry or just to be fans of the sport. The next Mm -hmm. thing I'd like to see if I was working in NASCAR is make all of that data available to everyone. Like Mm -hmm. you should be a kid in high school and you should be able to download, hey, Sally, it's throttle, steering and brake if you feel like it and compare it to Kevin Harvick's. I think that would be fun. And I do that. I teach a class at Columbia, a vehicle dynamics class. And I use driver data to show, you know, vehicle dynamics concepts. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's really useful and it really is engaged. You know, it really gets students engaged. Josh, that's so much fun. Uh, we're out of time for now, but we need to talk. We need to let not another five years. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I, I could talk about this at any time. I love well, it. By the way, you just mentioned teaching a class at Columbia. We have a friend who teaches a finance class out there a long time. Um, 
adjunct uh, and really sharp and really into sports analytics and kind of non-traditional sports analytics. A lacrosse guy still plays oh, hockey. Really? Michael Mobison, fantastic guy. We'll get you connected around. Oh the yeah, please do. You guys please would do. enjoy. We could uh, enjoy the conversation. Yeah, because it's nice to translate analytics in one sport to analytics in another sport. I think I mentioned you guys when I talked to you a few years ago that uh, when we first got started at Pit Road, Daryl Morey was one of our uh, co-founders and advisors. So you know we follow the Daryl yeah. Morey approach to sports. That's athletics. awesome. No, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, Jesus yeah. So well, but in the early that. days, he helped. He helped. You know, with a lot of with guidance around. Uh, that. Oh well, the MIT connection is right there. With you got him. it. it yeah. That that was the MIT connection. For sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Josh. It's a real pleasure. Josh Brown, co-founder, founder, founder of Pit Row. Um, and updating us on what's going on in the world of racing analytics. Always a delight. That has been another two hours of sports analytics, another episode of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM on behalf of my good friend and co-host Shane Jensen, who's been in here for the last quarter. On behalf of our missing co-hosts in the last quarter, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. On behalf of the boss man, Matty Datz, and the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Mm-hmm.